Welcome to Business Done Differently, the podcast about challenging the status quo, creating fans first, and changing the game in business. I'm your host, Jesse Cole, and it's showtime. Today's guest is Steve Robinson, the former vice president and chief marketing officer of Chick-fil-A. He's the author of Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A, and he is a legend in the marketing world. Steve, I am <laughs> fired up to welcome you to the show. Well, thanks, Jesse. I don't know if I'm a legend, but I'm honored to be on your show. Thank you. <laughs> I'm excited. As listeners know, I interviewed David uh, last season, David Sailors, who had so many amazing things to say about you and learned a lot from you. And for the listeners, I just love a little bit of context because you were involved with Chick-fil-A for many, many years. Give a little yep. bit of your story and maybe where Chick-fil-A was when you started. Wow. Well, I'm an Auburn grad and I met my wife there. And after we married, literally four days after graduation, we went to Northwestern where I got my master's in journalism and advertising. Mm. My first job was Texas Instruments and Semiconductor Group. And I was helping them market these newfangled calculators that you could hold in the hand. They didn't do nearly as much as this does. <laughs> I was there about a year and I got recruited by a Northwestern classmate's brother at Six Flags Over Texas. And I had learned within a year at TI that they were more engineering oriented than marketing or brand. Mm. And and TI was a great company, still is, but Six Flags was clearly a brand driven, brand experience driven company, which mm. was more of, of my liking. So I joined them and I worked with Six Flags Corporation a total of seven years, and the last four years was Six Flags Over Georgia, where at the age of 28, I became the director of marketing and was having a great run, great experience, great team. In fact, David Sires was an intern for us uh, <laughs> for years while he was at UGA. And my phone rings one evening in August, and it's the COO of Chick-fil-A who worked for Truett Cathy, the founder. And Jimmy Collins was his name. And Jimmy said, listen, our operators just don't have what they need to sell sandwiches the right way. We don't have a marketing department. And I'd had some other interactions with them trying to get them to build a restaurant actually in the park as a way to build trial and build the brand. And they'd walked away from that deal. So I knew he didn't have a marketing department. I'd experienced <laughs> that firsthand. But being private, having gotten to know some of the people there, loved the product. Love the culture, you know, little things like being closed on Sunday. I said, yes, Jimmy, I'd love to talk, even though I really loved what I was doing at Six Flags. Yeah. So I figured, what's two or three days of visiting with them? We're finding out what they might have. So that's August. I'll jump ahead. I'm still interviewing with Truett Cathy in December, over four months later. And Jesse, this is all stealth. Now, when you've got a great job in the city of Atlanta, you don't to lose it. So I had been trying to handle this respectfully and doing it on my own time. And so I'm having a meal with Stuart Cathy in his office. And it's now early December, 1980. And I asked Stuart, I said, Stuart, I know what Jimmy said about this job, but what are you looking for in the ideal marketing person for Chick-fil-A? And Jesse, it's in my book. His reply just threw, blew me over. He said, I have absolutely no idea. All I know is I don't want to do it. And I was a little stunned. But he wasn't finished. He said, but I do know this. We're not going to invite you here unless we know we can have fun together and we can trust you. Mm. Because if we invite you here, it's my intent that you won't go anywhere else. Mm. You're going to finish your career here. 
and you're going to become a crucial part of this business. And I said, well, when do you think you're going to make that decision? He said, well, I don't know yet. (laughs) And uh, as it turned out, they made that decision two weeks later. But as I'm leaving the office, he said to me, he said, Steve, if you haven't figured it out, the most important decisions we make here are who we invite to join Chick-fil-A. And we don't rush it, whether it's an operator or a staff member. So Jesse, the short, that is an abbreviated version of a long interview process. And I joined them in January of 1981. They did obviously invite me. And he was right. I got to start from scratch. He nor Jimmy had any preconceived notions of what I should do or what they should be doing. They wanted a marketing expert. And I don't know at the age of 30 that I was an expert yet, but I thought I was. (laughs) And I share my book. I made a few crucial mistakes early to keep me humble and balanced. But yeah, that's how I joined them. They had sales of about the year I joined them, about $100 million. And, and a record, how many stores they had? About 140 mall, all mall locations. Yeah, okay. mall stores, about 140. But one of the attractions was who was running those stores. It was the operator model, the independent contractor model that I found fascinating because Truett was empowering these local restaurant leaders to really not just run the restaurant, but to run a business in their community, track their own talent, the, the talent worked for the independent contractor, still does, build their own community relationships, do what they got to do to build sales. And so the marketing paradigm wasn't the home office drove traffic, the marketing paradigm with the independent operator was the one that had to build relationships and build their own sales. So our role, my role and early team members like Dave Sires was how do we equip these operators to go out and build their relationships, build traffic, not only market the sandwich, but market the brand, market themselves as an employer. So that's what we walked into, a fundamentally sound business, but it was only going 4 or 5% a year. It was subject to the ups and downs of the mall industry, but they had three powerful things. They had a powerful culture, Mm. had a great product, and had this incredible local leadership model. So you had some things to work with. We had some stuff to work with. (laughs) But launched the marketing department, and if I remember, it was like almost out of this little trailer at one point, I think, is where you guys... That's right. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, my office and David's, we were in a trailer attached to the back of a butler building with warehouse. (laughs) And Truett's and Jimmy's office was in the front of the Butler building. A lot of the staff was in rented space in about a bank building in downtown Hapeville. And there was some other staff in a rented house next door. But this was the entire corporate office operation was fundamentally in this converted Butler building. Mm-hmm. And our lunch was a daily run to the dwarf house, the original dwarf house for lunch <laughs> that was brought back. It was classic startup operation. Uh, yep. You know, I relate so much to that because when we started in Savannah, we actually, the former team took out, cut the phone lines, cut the internet lines, and there was no office. So we worked in an abandoned storage building, brought a picnic table in from the park. We were working around there on a cell yep. phone. And yes. it's those stories that make it worth it. I don't think you would have changed probably anything. It's like, of course we started here. There was well, no... Right. We had to clear out the conference room and get everything off the conference room table for lunch every day. <laughs> it was great. I love it. I love it. And so obviously... At least you knew you were going to have a lunch break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. So you were in a spot where obviously the business had grown and they were known for their chicken sandwich and a little bit of the culture, but there was really no full brand developed this time. 
your whole entire book, you talk about what makes Chick-fil-A different. And you said one line, the brand is the business. You help build the brand and share it. Now, the culture might have been built, but you help share it. Tell me kind of how you started building the brand. I think this is so fascinating and so important for listeners to hear. How do you build the brand? Well, it involves several key things, Justin. In fact, in that last interview with Truett, he had on his desk his favorite Bible verse, Proverbs 22, 1. A great name is to be more valued than riches or silver and gold, depending on what translation you want to read. And uh, as I walked out, I said, Truett, he asked me, why do you want to come here? And one of the things I told him was I thought that potentially become a great brand. And he kind of looked at me and said, well, I'm not sure I know what that means. <laughs> and I said, sure, that Bible verse you got right there is what a great brand is. It's a reputation that people can trust. Mm. And they had the foundation for that because of him yes. and the culture he was creating and the talent he was surrounding himself with. So the first thing I would say to you, you can't create a great brand without great culture. And you're not going to create a great culture without great leaders. Mm. And many organizations may have great leaders, but unfortunately, many of them cycle through too many. Mm. And so they don't, they don't have the stability of leadership. And if you don't have stability of leadership, it's hard to create lasting pillars of value within the culture that don't keep moving around. And in other words, things what's important keeps changing. A great culture cannot operate like that. Mm. And our corporate purpose, which I share the story of how that came about in 1982, was written in a point of crisis. Those words, uh, to glorify God by being a grateful steward of all, to honor God by being a great steward of all that is entrusted to us, and to have a positive influence on all that we come in contact with, those words have not changed. Mm. They still are on the bronze plaque in front of the corporate building, and they have not changed, not one word. Mm. Well, that's pretty unusual, Jesse, because that reflects leadership who is still fully committed to what those words mean. So the first thing is we had the foundation of a great culture, which was rooted in great leadership. Yes. And Chick-fil-A, even though Truett has passed and Jimmy's retired, Chick-fil-A still has that mm. because you have a multi-generational family-owned business. Their priority on being careful about who they invite into the company has not changed. Mm-hmm. And now under the leadership of Dan, Kathy, and other Kathy family members, the legacy of that leadership foundation is not only historical, it's still their future. Yes. Okay. All right. So that's the first thing I would say to you. Yeah. The second thing early in my experience was they had what most fast food and retail operators have. They had a transactional mindset. What do we got to do to drive transactions? So they're discounting, they're couponing, they're doing everything that normal fast food brands do and still do to this day, pushing price. And when I got there, I didn't know any better. We did some of that stuff. And one of the first things I was part of was a promotion in 1982 where we not only did that, we did it so well that it blew the budget. What was the, what was the promotion? It was called First and Best, and it was a promotion designed to counter the introduction of a chicken sandwich at McDonald's, but it uses coupons through mail and newspaper inserts. So was it like a buy one, get one free or half off? It was not one thing. It was multiple offers and a flyer, and I unpacked the story in the book. I even show a picture of it in the book. Well, I just went right down the paradigm of all the other fast food brands and, but it was also the paradigm that Chick-fil-A was operating under. This thing blows up like a giant balloon, goes over budget by two million, 
And we're in the middle of a cash flow crisis because of the 1982 economic crisis that hit the United States. And so my promotion just added, you know, just piled on to the cash flow process. And my learning from that was, number one, that was catalytic to go out and the executive committee together and decide what are we going to do about that problem, the cash flow problem. But that's where we wrote the corporate purpose. Hmm. Because we realized that the future of Chick-fil-A is, is not just about short-term focus, short-term cash flow. And we, with its help, we wrote down what's really important. And it's not shareholder value. It's not quarterly earnings. It's that corporate purpose. Mm-hmm. But the other big lesson from that debacle <laughs> was I didn't want the marketing department to look like the rest of the fast food industry. And we're not going to chase transactions. We're not going to discount. We're not going to deal. We're not going to lead with price. Mm. And it became a fundamental 180 turning point in the business. That principle became rooted in our marketing mindset. It still is at Chick-fil-A. I don't think you're going to ever see a deal or a price or a coupon for Chick-fil-A. Now, when you see people offering you a free sandwich at a football game or through a special invitation card, yes. But you will not see discounts and deals at Chick-fil-A. So with that mindset, we built a marketing program that was built around two fundamental premises, Jesse. One, how do we leverage the value of the food and the value of the experience without having to discount it? And secondly, how do we do that through the leadership of the local operator? We're not going to drive the brand or even transactions from the home office. We're going to drive it through the efforts and the local connectivity of the local leader that we call a Chick-fil-A operator. And those principles, yeah. which I'm packing the book in great detail. Yeah. So how do you build a great brand? I can go back to your original question. You got to have clarity about your culture. Yes. You got to have clear understanding of what's really important. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the purpose allows people not only know what's important, it helps them, it helps them make better decisions. Mm-hmm. You got to have stable leadership and you got to decide how are we in the marketplace? How are we going to look like, not like everybody else? Yes. What how makes are we be different. Yes. That took us down a path that exploited, uh, later exploited what was unpacked in a best selling book called Blue Ocean Strategy. Yes. We were really doing it and we didn't know it, but we were <laughs> basically saying if this is what the fast food industry does with dealing or advertising or promotions or food events, we're going to try to do the exact opposite. So we're not going to use, for example, food. We're not going to use frozen food. We're not going to use pre-made food. We're going to make fresh food. Promotions, we're not going to discount. We're going to be generous with the real product. At events, we're not going to hand out coupons. We're going to hand out free food. We're going to have our people doing it. And eventually it led to our advertising. It's not going to feature food and price. It's going to feature something that people enjoy watching. And that became, of course, the cow campaign. So if you can identify just three or four big, fundamental principles that will lock your culture in granite and that your leadership always leads by, talks by, and makes decisions by, and then fundamental marketing and brand decisions that will put you in a unique, different blue ocean. Yes. That's how you do it. Steve, I love this so much because we actually had conversations when we came into Savannah with this brand new team. There was minor league baseball there for 90 years and they had Buy one, get one free. Uh, two oh, yeah. dollar beer. Major League teams still do this regularly. I saw yeah. Fridays, you bring a toiletry item, you can get a free ticket. I mean, it was the weird, it was just deals, 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 deals. Right. And 
And right. you know what I learned from a Chick Fil A, and I was like, you never go to Chick Fil A and look for the dollar menu. It would no. go anywhere else. You don't, even, you don't even think about it, and you don't even think about it. And we had this conversation. We said, you know what? They're giving away tickets for free at a higher level than us. Baseball. We were a lower level. And we said, let's go the exact opposite. And we said, what if every ticket included all your food? What if every ticket was all inclusive, included all your burgers, your hot dogs, your chicken sandwiches, your soda? And Perfect. We play that game and we increased ticket. They were dramatically, I mean, they're $18 now, which it sounds like it is a great deal, but they were getting like five, $10 for We've never had a kid, a parent, anyone complain once because the value exceeds. You don't have people complain at Chick-fil-A because of the price, because the value exceeds so much. And you talk about building a brand. I heard the quote from uh, John DeJulius, discounting is the tax you pay for being average. It's so good. It's like a drug, by the way. Your customers get hooked on it and then it's hard to get out of it. Yeah. You know, I, we decided we're not going to discount a deal anymore. Well, that didn't happen overnight. It took us years yes. to convince the operator family, do not do that. I mean, they were doing their own freelance coupons and we had to come out with very clear brand and marketing standards that said, you're not going to do that. And by the way, we're not going to give you any creative resources that makes it possible for you to do that. Wow. Yeah. But it took time because you literally had to get their customers and them off the addiction of the short-term pot yes. of yes. deals. Yeah. But it's even brand. You're really saying to your customer, we're not worth full price. There you go. There you go. Five. I couldn't agree more because it dramatically devalues. And then what happens is it works for a short term, but it kills for the long term. It That's kills. It. And I think I've heard David talk about this to you. It's like, are you trying to create more money? Are you trying to create fans? And we're playing long-term fans over short-term profits every All day. Right. And I think you built that. And I want to get into this because I know there's the raving fan strategy. Explain yes. to me how you guys started building it. So you're building the brand. You're like, we're not going to do discounts anymore. We're going to be different. We're going to top of the value. The ads are going to be different. And then you took it another level. We're going to develop raving fans. How this whole started. All right. Again, it's in the book. Well, let me un- underpack the, the highlights yeah. and I'll try to do them in chronological order. Yeah. Jesse, when we went with our first freestander on the street, in 1986, operationally, fundamentally the same, just at a much bigger scale, okay? Now, the marketing challenge was different because we're now trying to build a brand destination, make us a destination as opposed to just captive audience marketing in the mall. So we're trying to say this brand, not only we're here, but this brand is a better value, a better experience than McDonald's or Arby's or Burger King or whoever else is on the street. In your first store, you went all right next to them, right? Oh, yeah. We intentionally picked a site in Atlanta that had every brand I just named was within walking distance. Why would you pick that? Because we wanted to find out if we could play with them or not. (laughs) And quite frankly, we wanted to find out if we could do business a different way and be better. And It was a huge test on numerous levels. That's right. And a little nuance was just we did not put an operator at risk in that first store. That first store operated for a year with a staff member running it to make sure we knew what we were doing. So it was, was, was learning. Yeah. Yeah. Not only operationally, financially, but also marketing. And we didn't put on operator risk. Well, that store in its first year did double what we thought it would do. So obviously operators signed me up. What did it do compared to mall stores? Oh my goodness. More than double. Okay. So it was your best store by far in the first year. Oh, by far. Wow, amazing. Okay, so we then start, obviously, and the financial crisis of 82 and 83 virtually wiped out mall development anyway. So if we wanted to grow, we had to go to the street. So I'll fast forward. We start building basically nothing but freestanders. And by the 90s, early mid-90s, we're getting 100, 200, 300, 400, 500. Mid-90s, we got 500 stores on the street. 
But we had an operational problem. The operational experience was inconsistent. Mm. So the first pillar of the Raven fan strategy is operational excellence. And we weren't. We had big variances on product and order accuracy and speed of service. And credit where credit's due, we had a couple operators up in Kentucky who were near a Toyota plant. And they had been reading about Toyota's zero defects strategy on manufacturing. Yeah, Kaiser's. So they went and they, with the permission, obviously, of Toyota, they went in and they studied, okay, how does this work? And they took those zero defect mindset and fundamental principles and even some of the fundamental measurement systems into these two restaurants. And they transformed the consistency of their performance. So the short version of the story is we then partnered with those operators to figure out how do we put in an operational zero defect system, mentality and system chain-wide. And by the late 1990s, our variance of operational delivery had shrunk down. We weren't zero, but we were low single digits on virtually every measurement. Wow. What what were those measures? Sorry. Well, it was measurements on delivering the food the right way. It was measurement on order accuracy, speed of service, Mm. personnel engagement, cleanliness, Mm. appearance of the store. We were using mystery shoppers and customers to give us constant feedback on these specific measurements. We had staff members going into stores unannounced, make, observing and making measurements. We knew it was customer-driven data. It wasn't, what does a staff member think? It was customer-driven data. You either sandwich is either 140 degrees or better, or it's not. I mean, we got people walking in there unannounced with thermometers and scales. Okay? I mean, this is... If you have specs, then you got to be prepared to measure against your specs. Amazing. So it's almost a five or six year journey of zero defects focus where we actually can say, you know what, we're actually starting to now deliver operational excellence. Mm-hmm. And it became the first pillar in the Raven fan strategy. Okay. Around 2000 or so, 2001, we hit the billion dollar sales mark. What's the next value-add proposition that continues to allow us to charge full price and people feel good about it. And it actually came down to two of them. One came from marketing, and that was how do we continue to leverage? How do we leverage what only we can do? How can we leverage real food? How can we leverage the talent that operators are attracting the restaurant, not just to serve, but to market? And we got this catalytic idea of cows. How do we take cow campaign and really press into it not only in the restaurants, but regionally and then eventually nationally. And our initial focus was college football. Mm. And the cow campaign came from the richest group out of Dallas. I unpacked that story. So now we got another pillar, marketing that's very different, very unique, generous, emotionally engaging, makes people laugh. We're not asking them to buy something at $4.99. We're not even showing product. We're engaging them emotionally. And if we do engage in those products, because somebody literally out on the, somebody in the local marketing arena gave them something free. All right. The third pillar actually came from true. And it, what, it became second mile service, mm. where for three years in our national meeting, he asked the operators and their team members, if somebody says thank you in the store and the drive through, would you please say my pleasure back? 
because he had experienced that at the Ritz-Carlton. He loved the personal engagement. People were looking him in the eye. They were smiling. And he noticed everybody in the hotel said it, and it had a contagious spirit about it. Wasn't anything complicated to him. He was simply saying, would you please say my pleasure? And for two plus years, the operators thought, we're busting our butts (laughs) trying to make great food fast and accurately. And how are we going to do this warm, fuzzy stuff? That might even slow us down. (laughs) Now, that's really was the initial mindset. And about year three of him saying that, Dan Cathy was sitting next to me at a meeting or at the seminar. I can't remember which, but he looked at me and I looked at him and we're hearing Chuck talk about it one more time. And he was kind of upset with me that we didn't have any traction with it. And I said, Dan, here's the deal. I'm all for it. If we want to do it, then we've got to commit to figure out how we're going to institutionalize this, just like we did zero defects. We got 50,000 team members who don't know how to treat people right. Some of them don't even know good personal etiquette. Mm. How do we create uh, the the systematic approach to hospitality that you've seen the Ritz-Carlton across over 500 stores and 50,000 team members? Again, I'm not going to unpack it now, but we went through, we started a He said, all right, I'm all in. You guys and your team figure out how do we do it? Because he had all these behaviors we wanted to put in the stores, but we just weren't getting traction. Mm. And so we benchmark great experience brand companies, Zappos, Southwest Airlines, Nordstrom's, Ritz-Carlton, Nike, Apple Store. Benchmark. We visited their stores. We visited their headquarters and talked to the leaders. We visited them as customers and we bought stuff and just watched and took notes. But the, all these organizations were very transparent with us. And we then took that and we developed focus groups. Okay, what are the potential behaviors that customers might like at Chick-fil-A? We got customer feedback on what behaviors added value to them. And that's where things like refreshing drinks without being asked and cleaning the tables quietly and flowers on the table and carrying out large orders and helping women take food to the table when they got kids with them. That stuff didn't just come out of nowhere. It came out of listening to customers, both in small groups and in restaurants. And we then said, okay, we're going to phone in. We're going to focus in on these six or seven fundamental behaviors, and we're going to create them as a standard the same way we expect two pickles on every sandwich. Literally. Now we got to develop the specs for those, the training systems for those. And just like zero defects, we got to develop measurement for those. Mm. Customer measurement. Are we delivering on these engagement behaviors? How did you develop the specs? <laughs> we spent two years in test stores, a hundred of them. And the operators figured out, helped us figure out how to clearly define the specs because one of the key things that we learned early in executing the behavioral hospitality behaviors was if you don't have the right talent, it never happens. Somebody who's really good in operations and may not be really good at hospitality. And it suddenly opened up this window that, oh, some of our operators aren't good at hospitality. So we have to have hospitality leaders in every restaurant. And we have to have them recruiting people that have the gift of hospitality and like it and like to engage with people. So the person currently fixing fries in the back, don't bring them out front if they don't have that gift. Hmm. And it literally led, here's where, I'll give you the punchline. It led to the, a raving fan system that not only had three critical strips, strategies, 
with clear standards, performance standards on all three pillars, and talent strategies for all three pillars. The right talent for operations, the right talent for hospitality, and the right talent for marketing in the restaurants. Mm. So operators, those test operators figure out, okay, what's the right talent? What's the right bench? And by the way, that means I got to have leaders for those three big buckets. But I've also got to have leaders to help me manage accounting and training and recruitment. But I got to have talent helping me lead these three areas that are crucial to Raven fan strategy. And it took two years not only to develop all that stuff, but then to have the sales and the profitability performance that we could go to the rest of the operators and say, oh, by the way, you do this and you will actually make more money. Oh, because because of the operation model, they had to pay for the extra training. They're paying for all, they're paying for all this. They're, yeah. they're pay for this extra talent and yeah. this extra training. That's exactly right. We had to develop all the resources for that. Yes. Not only specs, but the training materials, the measurement systems, the communication systems, the marketing systems. We had to give them everything they needed to execute that three pillar strategy. And we paid for all the measurement, so yes. they're not having to pay for the measurement. And they're getting measurement on a monthly basis. Okay. And I know, I'm sorry, this is just so fascinating to me because if people don't go this deep, I know it's a little deeper, Steve, but so the measurements out of curiosity, how is that done? And so is it measured by customer feedback or is it measured by the operators? It's measured by customer feedback. Okay. Uh, current system uh, solicits online feedback. There are still random shoppers that go to the restaurants and measure, measure quality, measure hospitality, observe what they see. The data is collected by store monthly. Sometimes, I don't know how they're doing it now, it might be rolled up by quarter, but every store is getting store-specific data. We then roll it up for the market, so operators as a market can see how they're doing. And then there's a macro study that we do at the home office called Brand Tracker that's tracking the Chick-fil-A brand on these three fundamental areas, but not only tracking us, but tracking our key competitors. How are we performing on the same key metrics versus the other brands. Mm. So we can tell the operators in Atlanta, Dallas, or any other market, here's where you're trending, not only within the Chick-fil-A family, but here's how you're trending versus the other brands. And, oh, by the way, Dallas is kicking your butt. Mm. They're doing a better job. Or you're leading the way in this. So that's part of the answer to your question. How do you create a brand? It is a long journey. And ultimately, you create a brand when the people on the street realize that they are going to be more successful under the umbrella of a powerful brand and all of those systems. Hmm. And they don't mind being accountable to the customer and what the customer says, because at the end of the day, they make more money. <laughs> Steve, I've done over 100 of these, and I don't think I've ever been like almost speechless because I'm processing this in my mind. <laughs> And, so, and that's a good thing. As my listeners know, I'm very rarely speechless. But what I'm seeing here is obviously you're chief marketing officer. You're in charge of all the marketing. And everyone thinks of marketing as things you're putting out, you're putting out, putting out. You guys focused all on the experience. And then who that's does right. marketing for you? It's very simple. Your fans, your evangelists. The people. Right. Yeah, exactly right. Chick-fil-A today is marketed principally by the Chick-fil-A fans. Yes. And the success they've enjoyed now for multiple years about pacing the industry yeah. is not because of what the home office marketing department is doing to drive transactions. It's because of literally millions of Chick-fil-A fans talking about the brand. Yeah, 100%. And, and for the most part, they're talking good about the brand. 
Here's yeah. what fans do, Jesse. This is a fundamental principle I talk about in the book. We learned through the research over years that our Raven fans do fundamentally three things. They come more often, yeah. a lot more often. They gladly pay full price. They don't mind paying full price. And they tell others about us. And oh, by the way, if we mess up, they tell us because they love the brand that much. 100%. They'll go to their computer and give us feedback on their experience if they're disappointed. Mm. They don't mark it off as, oh, well, that's just another fast food. No, that's my favorite brand. They didn't know somebody screwed up today. They'll go give us the feedback. Because they feel ownership in their brand. They feel part of it. ownership of it. It's their brand. Yeah. The brand has become, and there are other brands out there like this, the brand has become part of their life. Yes. And they don't want to live life without Chick-fil-A because they love the experience. Mm. They love the food, but they more importantly love the experience. They like the way they're treated. They feel like they're getting their money's worth. They feel good about what their kids are eating. When they interact with Chick-fil-A in the marketplace, whether it's a community event or a road race or a football game or whatever, they deal with real people. They're treated with experiences that are unexpected, like somebody literally handing them a sandwich or a pack of nuggets or yes. whatever. And it's just the accumulation of personal interaction and personal engagement that says, we respect you, we honor you, and we value you as a customer of Chick-fil-A. And in turn, they become a fan. 100 I mean, that's all I, we talk about fans, fans first, the name of our company. That's everything. And that's why this is so fascinating to me. And I just want to say one thing, especially for the listeners. I don't know if they realize, but I'm also reading the book, Who Not How. And you've talked a lot about the people. And we look at like Chick-fil-A and it's like, oh, well, you guys have done this all. Yes, you've executed. But it sounds like every step of the way you went to someone else to get help, whether it was the Richards Group, the advertising, whether it was Ben. Absolutely. Every step Absolutely. of the way, people helped you do this. Absolutely. My attitude, literally, when I went there. Because I did learn this at Six Flags, particularly. Yes. Don't hire anybody. Don't recruit anybody that cannot do what you want them to do better than if you did it yourself. Mm -hmm. Second part of that, and if you do not have the talent on your team to do it the right way, and you don't want to commit permanent hiring, then you go out and find the right talent. and You pay them a retainer or a commission or whatever you got to do to get the best counsel, the very best counsel. So uh, Richard's Group's a great example of that. You know, we do our own creative. I didn't want a creative department. I didn't want a creative department to get stuck in a paradigm rut and lose the breadth of innovation. And so instead of having one creative team in our department, we can go to the Richard's Group and they might have five or six creative teams working on any given campaign. Now, are we paying for that? Yes. Did we get better ideas? Yes. Yeah. So brand changing ideas. 100%. And even in this area of research and measurement, we have now the voice of the customer group, is what they're called. We have leaders in that group, but they don't do the research. What's that look like? What's the voice of the customer group? That's the group that's coordinating all customer measurement, all customers listening, quality research like focus group, quantitative research, mystery shoppers, even structured research where we ask staff or operators to go out and measure something. Mm. There's one central location for the voice of the customer permeates the entire business, serves the entire business. Wow, amazing. So, But they're all outsiders. The yeah. people who do the work are outsiders. You hire their specialty. Because they're constantly honing their craft. Mm. Why do we want to bring that in-house? <laughs> but it all started with Truett. When he said to me, 
I don't know what it is I want you to do. All I know is I don't want you to do it. <laughs> right, yeah, it's okay. He meant it. He never called me to his office one time to say you screwed up, even though I did. Even in that big promotional mistake, he never confronted me. Now, Jimmy counseled me, don't go to his office for a few days, okay? <laughs> but, but if he trusted you, the bigger issue, if he trusted you, he gave you rope. Yeah. And that organization has thrived in large part because we focus on who we invite into the business. Mm-hmm. And then we empower them and we let them exercise their giftedness. Leadership's responsibility is, okay, now we got, if that's the kind of talent we're attracting, then we have to resource it. Mm-hmm. Well, what are you resourcing with? Well, the right culture, the right purpose and values, the right strategies, the right allocation of money, and then the right talent they need whether it's inside talent or outside talent, to run the place. And that's what Chick-fil-A consistently allowed me and my team to do. And judging by what I see, they're still doing it. <laughs> and you have an ownership in the Kathy family that still operates under, they don't try to manage hands-on. It's all empowerment. Their primary focus is we're going to protect the mission of this business, the values of this business. We're going to continue to be very philanthropic, how we steward this business financially. We're going to put people first, staff first, operators first, customer first. And if we're great stewards of all that, we trust God to favor us. Mm. And he has. It's amazing. So like for us, just like we continue to put fans first and we look at everyone as fans. So Steve, we look at our people as our biggest fans. So yes. put, put fans first in everything we do, entertain always. And then you know, we're just trying to make baseball fun and bring joy and happiness to people. And if that is a guideline, then under there, bring on whoever can help us in that mission. Right. And right. don't small companies. I mean, we weren't, you started a hundred million, you know, we're multi-million, but not even in the eight figures yet. It's tough to invest that type of money, but you have to just say, is it better if someone else does it and have that courage to invest? It sounds like, and just start saying, we need better people. We need better people. Yes. Let me just encourage you. I have three clients right now and they're all probably about your size. Yeah. And I'm working with them because they're committed to the same basic model that I've unpacked for you. Mm-hmm. And I'm not bragging about myself. I'm bragging on them. They are truants and they're thriving, mm-hmm. even in the midst of the pandemic. Yeah. All three of these businesses are thriving yes. because they've adopted these mindsets. They're not chasing transactions. They're making talent their top priority. They're clear purpose and values. They're investing in the experience as opposed to trying to drive short-term results, and they're thriving. Mm. So it works. Many of these principles, quite frankly, are they're golden nuggets in the Scripture. They're in the Bible. Yeah, but it's the simplicity of following it. And doing it's the simplicity of that's exactly. It's not a long list. I 100%. mean, even though we've had a good discussion, this is not a long list of fundamental principles. That's why my book's only two hundred and forty pages. It's, <laughs> but it's, it's, it it's not. It yeah. ain't that complicated. Does it, it all? Really, it's yeah. hard work. Oh, yeah. But it's not that complicated. Oh, yeah. I want to finish with a couple of just rapid fire things that really stood out for me. You talk about your service signature. How have you shown that or developed that? You talk about other brands developing that. Your service signature is the my pleasure. How would you teach other companies to develop that? Well, quite frankly, actually, that's a hard question because it goes all the way back. I go all the way back and I give speeches. I go all the way back to culture. If you don't have the culture right, you cannot do this. Yes. Because this experience, my pleasure attitude, really does flow from the heart. Mm. 
if it's not genuine and authentic, starting with your leaders, it's uh, people see right through it. Mm. That people cannot be conned. Genuine hospitality is genuine. Yes. So it starts with leadership and it starts with them saying, you know what, we're going to treat people with honor, dignity, and respect both inside and outside of the organization. And so when we adopt strategies on how to build the business, those must permeate the strategies. Yes. So you got to start with culture, then have to focus on leadership. Yes. And then you you got. if you got constant turnover and leadership, this is almost impossible. Yes. And then you develop because if Truett just said my pleasure for just two years and didn't the third year say it again, that my pleasure might not have been. It was the repetition and the same yeah. leadership showing up saying this is what we're about. Yeah. And because we knew it, it was genuine from him, yes. he really meant it. Then it motivated us. Okay. Yeah. We got 50,000 team members out there. You know, today it's over 150,000. Yeah. Well, we got to figure out how to institutionalize this. And it was harder. It was harder than rolling out a new product. Yes, because it's changing their actually behavior dramatically. It's yeah, changing people's that's behavior. right. You're changing people's behavior. Yeah, which is really hard. You know, it's interesting, Steve. I just thought like language is everything. And you've showed this with what you guys do. Language is everything. And when we think about our ballpark, before you go out from the office, our office is at the stadium, you go out into the field, it says always on stage. And we believe in entertaining always. We believe we don't, when people come to our ballpark, we say, welcome to the show. Did you enjoy the show? It's show over and over and over again. And we just reiterate, it's a show, it's a show, it's a show. Because when it's a show, you have a different mindset of how you are performing. You are performing at our ballpark. And I would probably argue that Chick-fil-A, it's a level of performance as well on how you present everything. Every drive-through is a show. (laughs) Yes. Every delivery is a show. Every encounter a counter is a show. That's exactly right. Mm. And you can either show, I want your money's more important to me than getting to know you, or you can have team members in the drive through interacting with people personally. And Jesse, some of these team members, it's amazing. They learn literally the names of hundreds of their customers mm. coming through those drive throughs. So good. Now, what do you think that does? Personal connection. Customer retention. Yeah. You can't buy it. You can't get it with a coupon or a price deal. It's off the charts. Yeah, because they feel cared for. And it's they, they feel genuinely cared for. As you said before, I think the Chick-fil-A has developed a renegade position because of that. No one else is playing that game. And I think you also I read you read something about Horace Schultz worked with you guys a little bit. You don't, you don't want to, sure Schultz, you don't want to be the best of the worst. And it's that's like, right. When we've started that hospitality experience focus, that's the way he described us. He said best of a bad lot. <laughs> that's how we feel in baseball experiences. That's exactly how yeah. I was like, okay, but that's not the yeah. game we're playing. Our yeah. competition, and we say this, like we compete against ourselves, obviously. It's always against ourselves. But our customers' expectations, our fans' expectations are Ritz-Carlton, Chick-fil-A, Disney, Amazon, all the best of the best. And if that's the expectation, that's really, if we are competing so directly, it's them. Like right. how quickly can right. they get things served? How quickly can it be? Well, I will tell you, for example, as another example. Yeah. The Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl is part of the college football playoff, not just because Chick-fil-A and Truett were willing to put up the money, but they're part of the CFP. They're the smallest sponsor in the bunch. Mm. They're part of the CFP because over 20 years working with the bowl staff, the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl became an experience that was different, unique, special, and the bowl became one of the top bowl experiences in the nation. Mm. And we could not be considered to be part of the playoff system. Because you put your brand on it, your brand was actually, oh, well, if Chick-fil-A is involved in this, they're going to design an experience the right way. 
That's right. Mm. And so working with the bolt staff, that's what we did over 20 years. Bolt, designed a bolt, a, a bolt experience, a bolt brand that was worth being part of the CFP. It's amazing. It's amazing. I remember when the vaccine started uh, rolling out and everyone was saying Chick-fil-A should be rolling out the vaccinations. They should be taken. They could handle this and no debt. I was like, that's the def- And You should be so proud of that. When people say like, oh, they're like the Chick-fil-A of this or they're so-and-so or they could be the Chick-fil-A. That is unbelievable right. brand building. And- it is. It is. That's the primary reason why the Lord has still given me a platform to give speeches and consult. It's yeah. Well, hey, we've gone in, into this a while. You're lucky. You know, with David, I had games. I had him sing on the mic. I had him do a lot of things. But you got me so fixated on how do I develop this raving fan strategy that I'm not going to make you sing. Well, he was better at that than I was. So there yeah. you go. <laughs> he is, he is. I want to finish this with these last two. What's one quick win right now? Companies listening to this and they're like, all right, Chick-fil-A. I mean, you started in 1967. You said it took years to really build this, years of right. Years of development. What's a quick win that someone listening today can go back to their team and say, we're going to do this to help build raving fans or build our brand? Well, I would say the quick brand would be, this would be true most organizations. The quick win would be, we're going to go back and we're going to systematically listen to customers more. Mm. We're actually going to sit down in focus groups and we're going to interact with them out on the lot, the retail floor or wherever we are in the ballpark. We're going to listen to our customers more, and we're going to listen to two big groups, the ones who love us and the ones who don't love us. Mm. And we're going to take what they say seriously, and we're going to put our personal opinions, our personal pride, and our personal attitude that we know it all, and we're going to put it behind in a closet and close the door. Because we had to do that at Chick-fil-A, by the way. People thought they knew what to do. Mm. There was a lot of management by intuition. And there's a place by intuition, but I think intuition should be measured by, or actually intuition be, should be tempered by what do customers think. Yes. And customers, they ultimately are the ultimate firewood for innovation. Yes. Not me. Yeah. Not Truett. Not yep. Jimmy. Not not you and your business. Yeah. Listen to your customers. Yeah. And when a customer tells you, you know, I was blown away because somebody refreshed my drink. Okay. Let's do that everywhere. Yeah. And let's do that all the time. I love this. Well, that wasn't a Chick-fil-A idea. No. It was a customer idea. Came from the customers. Came from the and I think listen to your customers even when they're not speaking to you. And what I, proactively. Proactively listen. Yes. What yes. We realized, and I didn't tell many people this. We didn't talk about this publicly. We started watching, Steve, the last four seasons. We've been lucky to go from struggling to selling out every game. And we watched. Even though the amount of entertainment, the dancing players, the breakdancing coach, the pep band, no matter how much we entertained, at 9 o'clock, 9.15, fans started to leave. They weren't telling us, but they were leaving. And I was watching. I was like, people can't get tickets. There's scalpers outside, which is ridiculous. People can't get tickets. Yet people were leaving early. And I just kept watching. I think, I'm like, you don't leave a great movie in the middle of the movie. You don't leave a great concert or a football right. So we developed Banana Ball, a two-hour time game, nonstop action. We developed it. We took it on the road. And it got more attention, more things from fans than anything else. And I think you have to be able to listen even when it goes against convention. And it goes against, well, that doesn't make sense. No one's done that before. That's how you become a renegade. That's right. That's exactly right. And it's just fascinating. I want to finish the last one here. You guys talk about remarkable over and over and over again. And yes. I, you know, we went from unremarkable and nothing to trying to be unforgettable. And I'd love to know for you, how does someone become remarkable or unforgettable? Well, I think remarkable became the word that we could use publicly, <laughs> not instead of renegade. Yes. Remarkable was the word we used within the organization. Okay, how are we going to translate these brand marketing principles 
in operations, in second mile service, and in the traditional marketing bucket about how we think about what we do. And it was basically this principle. If it doesn't make somebody want to remark about it, why are we doing it? So whether it's the food, whether it's a hospitality experience, whether it's a marketing event, whether it's a piece of cow created, if it doesn't make people talk about it, then let's don't do it. And it creates discipline, but also drives innovation. And side benefit, Jesse, I mean this seriously, it's a lot more fun. <laughs> it just creates more fun. Yes. And forces you to avoid anything that looks like your competitors. Mm. Now, we started with that. And I guess we end with that. That's what a remarkable mindset forces you to do. If it doesn't make people talk, and if it looks different than the other guys, then we probably ought to do it. Yeah. Well, but if it doesn't make people talk, we don't need to do it. A hundred percent. And I'll tell you, that's how this started. Our relationship, your book was remarkable to me. I sent you a video immediately. I was like, this wowed me. Have a huge book report done. Chick-fil-A has been remarkable every step of the way. And, and this conversation, I know to many listeners and myself is remarkable. I'm already going to send it to my leadership team before it even published. I'm like, guys, we need to listen to this. This is great. So I want to thank you for like sharing so much. You learned a ton over the last 40 years. And now that you're sharing it all means so much and you're making a bigger impact than you know. And I just want to thank you from my heart to you because we're going to touch a lot of people because of your impact. It means a lot to me because I still personally believe in and try to live out the Chick-fil-A corporate purpose. So stewarding this experience, stewarding this story is really important to me. And I, I appreciate you giving me a chance to do it with you. And by the way, the book is also out in paperback now. So oh. it's out there. <laughs> I hope your staff and your listeners enjoy it. We'll be all over it. Thanks so much, Steve. You're welcome, Jesse. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Business Done Differently, where we believe that challenging the status quo, creating fans first, and changing the game is the best way to grow your business. For more information about the guest and topics covered in this episode, visit findyouryellowtux.com or shoot me a note at jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.